The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each uh, can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat uh, any of it uh, raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall not let and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, eat it with your belt fastened, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray that you would be our teachers. We give our hearts, our minds to your holy word. As we read this ancient text, would you make it alive for us today and for our lives? So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. So for the last four months, we've been looking carefully at the story of the Exodus. And uh, now we're going to be spending two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, looking at the famous Passover uh, story in Exodus, which is really a climactic moment in the story. If, if you don't know the story of Exodus, it tells a story about the people of Israel who were enslaved, they were oppressed in the land of Egypt. And God sent Moses and his brother Aaron to go confront Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and say, you need to let God's people go and free them as slaves. And Pharaoh kept saying, no, I'm not going to do it. And so there are these nine plagues so far have landed on the Egyptians. You know, the, the Nile River turned to blood and there were frogs that came out of the river and people got boils all over their body and all, the livestock was dying. And so all these terrible things have come upon the Egyptians. And now the, the tenth and final and the most terrible plague is about to fall on the Egyptians. And here in this passage, the scene shifts from the courts of Pharaoh, you know, where Moses and Pharaoh are having these arguments. The scene now shifts into the homes of the Israelites. And uh, God gives them these instructions about what to do on the night of the final plague, which will be the night of their redemption. Their redemption has come. 
And that word redemption is a word you know, we use in our culture often. It's about movies. You know, this, this was a story of redemption or this movie had redeeming qualities to it, which usually means that someone is, you know, either experiences a life change in the movie or they go through some hardship and trial and they, they persevere through it. But the word redemption in the Bible speaks primarily about the freeing of slaves. That's how a slave was either bought out of slavery or they were delivered out of slavery. That was their redemption, was when they're set free. And that's, of course, what's going to happen to God's people in Israel. They've been slaves for 80 years in, in Egypt, and now God is going to set them free. And the Bible tells us that the whole story of Exodus is like a picture of our spiritual lives. It says we are all born into a spiritual Egypt, enslaved, oppressed there. And in, in the slavery that we have is our own sin, our own selfish desires, our flesh, which means that something like what is happening to the Israelites in this story has to happen to all of us. That's one of the most essential things of being human is at the end of your life and you tell your life story, it should be a life story of redemption. I was a slave and God set me free. So what does that mean? What does redemption mean? Well, this morning, uh, as we look at this passage, I, I want to explore three ideas about what, how the Bible describes redemption. And I want to do it under these three headings, that redemption is a new world, redemption is a new community, and redemption is a new identity. A new world, a new community, and a new identity. And when your life is changed by Jesus... This is what it looks like, these three things, okay? So this morning, three things. The first is this. Redemption is a new world. What do I mean by that, a new world? Well, this passage that we just read, if you look at it, it begins in verse 1 saying, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, the word that's used there for beginning is the same word that appears on, in the first verse of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 1, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this passage tells us that God saw that time was starting again for Israel after the Passover, through the Passover. It's like time is starting over. It's like a, a, an old world is passing away and a new world is coming. And that might seem like kind of an overstatement that, you know, the Israelites are moving, they're leaving Egypt, and they're going to go somewhere else. To call it an old world passing away, a new world starting might sound like too much. But I think that's because, you know, we live in a modern scientific era where we primarily think of the world in terms of the material universe, right? You know, the world is the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and space and, you know, the laws of nature. We th primarily think of it in terms of matter, but in the worldview of the Bible, the world was not the physical cosmos only, but also the social and political and cultural realities that made up the world of God's people. So for example, if it, the, later in the Bible when Jesus comes, there's a lot of transition that happens culturally when Jesus comes. A lot of the Old Testament laws uh, stop being put in effect for God's people and the, the temple is destroyed and there's no more sacrifices and the priesthood goes away and then Jesus becomes the 
God's true king. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so a whole new era begins. And the way the Bible describes this transition is, you know, stars falling out of the sky and the sun going black and a new world is being born. It's this cosmic reality, but it's really also social, political reality is changing. And so you might think that's kind of a strange or cryptic way to talk about these things, about to talk about the world. But actually, we talk about the world that way. So for example, this last week, I was, I was reading an article on ESPN.com about the college football national championship that is coming up between Georgia and, and Alabama. The Georgia and Alabama are both in the SEC, the Southeast Conference. So two teams from the one conference are playing each other tomorrow for the national championship. And it's going to be in Atlanta, right near these two, these two rivals. And in the middle of the article, this is what it says. The perennial powerhouse, Crimson Tide, that's Alabama, will duel with the up-and-coming Bulldogs as Atlanta becomes the center of the college football universe. It's a universe. College football, that's how we talk. We view college football as a whole universe. It has its own calendar and, and time to it, right? You know, in August, the first rankings come out, and then, you know, you go through the regular season, and then, you know, bowl week comes, and then the, the national championship comes. There's a whole, there are these seasons to it and a whole rhythm to it. And, of course, you know, if one day, you know, the NCAA said, you know, there's been too many concussions, we're not going to have any more football, any more college football. You know, many people would say, the world is collapsing. You know, my universe is falling apart. Is because we understand that these social structures that we live in are the world that define the world that we see around us, that define the world that we live and eat and breathe in. And the universe of the Israelites was about to be radically transformed. So for 430 years, the Israelites have lived in Egypt. And for at least 80 years now, we know that they have been enslaved uh, in Pharaoh. They've been building these cities for Pharaoh, and it's been this, this brutal life that they've been living. And now they're going to they're become their own nation. They're going to receive their own laws through Moses. That's going to be the Ten Commandments. They're going to be given their own land. Then now they're going to have their own land. They're coming to a, new, a whole new place. It is like a new world is being born. Their universe is changing. That's what redemption looks like. It's like stepping into a new world. Now, the Bible sees the Exodus as a type or a pattern that shows us what redemption is like for us, too. Uh, when we put our faith in Christ and he forgives our sins and he sets us free from our sins, we, are, uh, you know, we were enslaved to our, our own selfishness and being our own gods. And Jesus liberates us. And for many of you, when that happened... It was like you came into a whole new world. The whole world was totally different. And, you know, maybe actually the physical world looked different. You saw, you know, you have this gratitude. You're like, wow, God made this world. And it's a different place than I thought it was. It's not just dead matter and, and laws of nature. This is the beautiful artwork of God that I'm living in. But also, you begin to talk differently. You have different language you use. And you have new people that you never talk to, new social groups. You become a part of a community, a church. And so, all of a sudden... It's like you've come into a new world. And that's why Paul says that when you are in Christ, you are new creation. You're 
there's a new world that God is making in Jesus, and you are a part of that. You are a piece of that when you put your faith in Jesus and you experience the redemption that Jesus offers to us. So what is redemption? First, strange thing, but it describes it as, as a new world being born. The old world, the old life is passing away. The old world is passing away. And a, a new world is coming that we have a share in. But as I mentioned, the worldview of the Bible is that the world is not simply the physical reality, but also the social reality that we live in. That leads to the second point, that redemption is also a new community. When you have redemption in your life, you find a new community. And you see that here in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, of course, that's a major part of the Passover. If you know much about the Passover, is this lamb, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But um, the Passover story is fascinating because the 10th plague, which was God had said that he was going to strike the firstborn of all the Egyptian families, was announced that it was going to happen at midnight, and they knew what day it was going to come. So what's happening, this is a terrifying night. I mean, you know, sometimes you might imagine if you've ever seen a movie about the Exodus where, you know, in the middle of the night, there's a child screaming and, and everyone goes to see what happened to my child. That's not how it would have been. Everyone would have been staying up waiting for midnight and watching their child. And what's going to happen? Is my child going to die? I mean, it's terrifying. And in the midst of this terrifying judgment that God is bringing on, on the Egyptians because they've enslaved Israel for these 80 years. In the midst of that, God tells his people, I want you to have a feast. You're going to get a lamb and you're going to bring your neighbors over. And in the midst of judgment, in the midst of terror, you're going to have this feast. And it's interesting what the passage says next in verse 6. It says, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, that's a strange thing to describe all the Israelites as an assembly because they're all in homes. They're not assembled. They're all in their homes and they're killing these lambs and they're having these meals. And yet, in the mind of the Bible, all these families that are having these meals are being bound together as one through this meal through this event, through this feast on this day. And what this tells us is that when all the individual families gathered in their scattered places, this one act, the killing and eating of these lambs, binds them together into a unified community, and so they are called an assembly. And that is what redemption does. When you experience God's redemption, God's freedom in your life, it brings you together with other people who are experiencing that same redemption. And, you know, of course, this is why the church is such an essential part of a spiritual life. God intends that our spiritual life is going to bring us together with other people. You know, when my life has changed and God is, you know, Jesus pours his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, the most natural thing is to find deep bonds with other people who are experiencing that redemption. Now, you might think, okay, well, that's an obvious thing. I know there are churches Christians get together in churches and they make communities. 
But many people in our culture talk about faith or you know, spirituality or religion as the opposite of community. They say, no, it's a private matter. It's a very individual matter. Um, it's a personal matter. And, I, and one historian actually in the 20th century defined religion this way as what a man does with his solitude. And the obvious implication of that is if religion is something you do in your solitude, would you please keep it in your solitude and please don't talk to anyone else about it. And, you know, and, and I think all of us somewhat sympathize with that because we've met annoying religious people that we wish they would keep it in their solitude. But if God came and acted in the world and his power made a tr transformative impact on people's lives, it would, there's no way it would isolate us. We know that can't be true. We know that the, the first thing it would do is form communities, would draw people together, who would be a part of it. And I think, by the way, I don't think it would only form communities, bring people together who share that redemption, but it would send them out into the other people and say, well, I want other people to experience the love that Jesus has showed to me. I want to show, show that love to them as well. And so a religion that is strictly private, I think that private aspect is an indication that that religion is in some sense false. It's serving me alone. It's self-serving. That is not being trained in love. And Christians, uh, you know, will meet Christians from all over the world. Some of you have had this experience. You know, maybe you're in Germany or you're in China or you're in Uganda and you meet a Christian who's culturally so different than you and instantly there's this bond. We are a part of one body. We share this deep passion. We sh we've been, our lives have been impacted in this same way. And the reason for that is because what happened in the Passover, all these families were in their homes, they were doing this meal and they were all experiencing the same redemption. That happens every Sunday in churches around the world. That's what, because this meal, this is, uh, the, the Lord's Supper was Jesus taking the Passover elements and he transformed it to center the Passover around himself. And now there's Christians in every you know, ethnic group of the world that goes through this rite of eating this bread and drinking this wine and we're bound together by this one faith and this one redemption that we have in Jesus. And so what redemption looks like, what does it look like if, to have redemption in my life? Well, first, it's going to look like the world has changed to me. Everything about my world is kind of undone. It's like an old world has passed away. I've entered into a new world. And it's going to bind me together to other people who are sharing in that redemption. But I think that redemption not only impacts you as a community, it does profoundly impact you as an individual. And that's the third point that I want to make is that also redemption is a new identity. When you experience re redemption, it's God redefining who you are, what it means to be human. And I think you can see this in, in verse 7, where it says, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So after they kill these lambs, they take some of the blood and smear it on the doorway uh, to their house. And then if you skip down to verse 12, this is what it says. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both, male and, uh, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments... By the way, just a side note, that expression that God is executing judgment on the, on the gods of Egypt, you know, when we were talking about the plagues, we mentioned that one of the meanings of the plagues was that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was going to battle with the gods of the Egyptians. You know, the Nile River was the great 
God of the Egyptians. And that's where that comes from, is from this verse in chapter 12, where God says, I'm showing all the other gods that I'm the true Lord. I'm the true God of creation. And uh, he's defeating all the, the oppressive gods uh, of the Egyptians. And then it goes on and it says, I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So here's where that name, the Passover, comes from. Is when the Lord comes to strike down the firstborn of the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the doorpost of the, of the Israelite homes, he will pass over those homes. And they'll be safe. And they'll be spared from, from the destroyer, from the destruction. And... Um, and as the Israelites would keep the Passover meal, you know, year after year, it would be a reminder again and again to them, this is who you are. What is your identity? I am a person who's been saved, who's been, whose God's wrath has passed over, who's been spared, who's been forgiven. And Christians, too, have this same identity. So uh, the gospel tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He was, you know, Passover lamb was supposed to be without blemish. Jesus was without blemish. He was sinless. He was the perfect lamb of God. You know, John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God. And his blood covers us. Jesus, when he died on the cross, when did he die on the cross? It was during the Passover. He became the ultimate Passover lamb. And his blood covers us so that when God's wrath comes, to judge evil in the world, to, to rid the world of evil. The wrath will pass over us. We're forgiven. We're spared. And so we have an identity that is based on grace, God's forgiveness to us. And when this is your new identity, I am a sinner who's been saved by Jesus' grace. That's a new identity. I'm a sinner who's been saved by Jesus' grace. And you will spend a lifetime taking that little phrase, and thinking through the implications of that for how you see yourself, how you view other people, how you relate to other people, how you talk to other people, how you forgive people, how you work with people, you know, who either it's your boss or people that work under you, or, or how you care for your neighborhood or how you care for your church. Working out that identity of I am a sinner who has been saved by the grace of Jesus is what the Christian life is about. And, but there's something that I want to point out about this passage because we're a church that puts a lot of emphasis on God's grace. We say over and over again, you are, God accepts you not based on what you do, your performance for God. God accepts you based on what Jesus has done. And you are not, you know, on a journey to find God. God is on a mission to find you. He's coming to find you. We, we put a lot of emphasis that God is coming to us. We're not going out to try to find him. That's what grace is all about. But this passage has some important instructions in it. And you may pick that up there in verse 8. Look what it says in verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This whole command has this sense of urgency to it. 
you're, you're being set free tonight, he's saying, and you're going to have to go. You need to be ready to go. You know, you're eating the whole meal in your traveling gear. You know, you got your staff in your hand and your belt on and your shoes on and you're ready to go. And they have to use unleavened bread because they don't have time for the bread to rise if they, if they you know, to use yeast. And so redemption Receiving a new identity and being rescued from God's wrath is not something that you can drift along into. There's no sense of drift. They're, not, they're having a feast, but they're not just kind of hanging out waiting for God to do it. He says, you need to be ready to leave. It's not accidentally. Redemption demands an intentionality and resolve. These are people who have spent generations in Egypt... And now they're, but now they have to leave. That means even though God is setting them free, even though God is doing everything, they still need to pack. <laughs> they still need to get on the road and walk away from the place that they've lived their whole life. That's not an easy thing. That takes some resolve. That takes some intentionality. You can become old and never have your life changed simply because you were drifting along for years and years and years. There never was an intentionality. There never was a resolve. Say, who is God? What has God called me to? What, is God, what grace has God offered to me? And I'll tell you, later in the Bible, the Apostle Peter, in his book, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.13, alludes to this passage when he's talking to, to a church, and he says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, which is literally gird up the loins of your mind. If you don't know that expression, that's, that's another way to say what's happening in Exodus. Girding up your loins is when you have a long robe and you, know, you can't run in the long robe. So you roll it up and you take a belt and you, to, so you get, can move around a little easier. And, you can, and he says, okay, you need to gird up your loins for action of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind for action. You need to get ready to do something and to be active if you're going to uh, uh, pursue the Lord. And this is an illusion. He's saying in the same way that the Israelites had to be ready to leave, we have to be ready to leave our old life. That's going to take some thought. It's going to take some attention. It's going to take some conversations. And so you, this, is what, this is what Peter says. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conducts. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Does that sound like drifting? Haphazardly, I hope God brings good things into my life. It's a resolve. It's an intentionality. For how many of us does grace mean I drift along, I do whatever I want because Jesus will forgive me? I think we all know that that's not redemption. Redemption isn't going to look like that. Redemption looks like giving attention. And this is not earning God's approval there is redemption. There is freedom. There is a new world of hope and love and joy in God's presence. There is a new community centered on Jesus. There is a new identity of being a sinner saved by grace. It's all a gift. But we have to pack. We have to walk out of Egypt. And that takes resolve. 
And so will we have the resolve and the intention to grab hold of and follow the grace that God is offering to us? Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we thank you for the exodus, this display of your power and love and goodness that you care for the oppressed and for the enslaved. And uh, Lord, you know that we have all been born into a spiritual Egypt. Uh, Teach us redemption, that we would... um, Prepare our minds for action. Have a resolve to see your work in our lives, in the lives of our community, in the lives of our city. So we present ourselves to you. Teach us more deeply about your grace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.